Micah 6. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat but not be satisfied. And there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away but not preserve. And what you preserve I will give to the sword. You shall sow but not reap. You shall tread olives but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes but do not drink wine. For you have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab. And you have walked in their counsels that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing. So you shall bear the scorn of my people." Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bride, a bride, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchmen, of your punishment has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication when my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down in the mire of the streets. A day for the building of your walls. In that day, the boundary shall be far extended. In that day, they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead in the days of old, as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt. I will show them marvelous things. The nation shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths, their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. 
They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. Who is, like, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Again, that's page five, 927 in your Black Pew Bible. I would encourage you, to, if you, if you don't have a Bible, to, to pick up the Bible. and It will help you immensely as we walk through this text. I'm going to ask the kids to come down. If you're second grade and under, you'd like to go to children's church, you can come and line up at the door. Appreciate. Appreciate y'all, Elizabeth, Emma, teaching today. Micah chapter 6 and 7. Some of us, uh, we like, hey buddy, some of us like courtroom drama. Um, I know that some of you have spent quite a bit of time watching Perry Mason. Any Perry Mason fans in the house? Oh, three or four. What about Matlock? Anybody? Yeah, Andy Griffith. Come on. Come on, people. Matlock, uh, that was a good one. Law and Order, getting closer. That's a, that's a 90s. Yeah, Jeff. showing your age, buddy. Showing your age. That's the 90s. The Practice, never seen that one. That's kind of a newer thing. I don't know. I'm not promoting any of these shows other than Perry Mason and Matlock. And then the, the one that I prefer the um, is Night Court, uh, if you remember. <laughs> That's my, uh, that's my courtroom drama uh, sitcom. I, you, and you know, it's, it's funny. I was thinking about that show, and lo and behold, if this week there's not like this remake of that sitcom. And I'm not promoting that either. I hadn't seen it. So don't be like, oh, the pastor said I ought to watch it. I didn't say that. Um, the old one back in the 90s, that was the 80s and 90s, that was a, a good sitcom with Bull, the bailiff. Yeah, it's funny, man. So I'll, I'll uh, encourage you, you can check out those um, past episodes. But we watch these, these courtroom dramas because we want to know if, the guilty, if they're guilty or not, right? We also want to know if the obvious guilty person can be convicted or not, right? That's why we watch those shows. Well, it's 2,700 years ago, okay? 2,700 years ago. There's this courtroom setting as we find ourselves in Micah chapter 6. And we've seen one courtroom setting in chapter 1. We see another one here in chapter 6. This was written 2,700 years ago. And notice the word here as we see these three speeches, oracles, sermons, if you will. They all begin with here. Pay attention, in other words. But here in this courtroom setting, there's no doubt whether the accused is guilty or not. God is, God's people have been indicted. They are guilty. And normally what you would do is you would go to the city gate if there was a, a trial or a disagreement, something needed to be mediated uh, about. You would go to the city gate and have that mediated, have your case heard. But here God, it says, we're going to the mountains. The mountains will hear the case. But what's interesting in verse 3 through 5, is that God asked through Micah the prophet what he's done to be so mistreated. And so what he does is a courtroom setting, and he gets up on the, the stand. And he says, what I want you to do is, is accuse me. Tell me what I've done against you. How have I mistreated you? Have I done anything to deserve this ill treatment? Has God been unrighteous? Did he do anything to cause his people to depart from him and wander away? 
Of course, the answer is no. But the covenant has been broken. God's people, they're rebellious. The people have forgotten what God has done for them. In the sense, they're not obeying Him. And that's our first point, verses 1 through 5. Has God's people forgotten what God has done for them? Is God not worthy of worship? Is He not worthy of obedience? And what God does in verses 4 and 5 is He reminds them what He's done on their behalf. Do you not remember Egypt? You were slaves. Remember, you called out to me. And what did God do? He rescued them, delivered them from the Egyptians. You can think about that account, what happened there. Remember, they were in a section of Egypt that there was no flies. There were no gnats. Their cattle didn't die. They didn't have boils. There were no locusts. There was no darkness. But yet, in the rest of the land of Egypt, all of these calamities came upon the Egyptians. God saying, remember I brought you out of Egypt. I rescued you from the Pharaoh's mighty hand. In verse 5, remember also Balak. If you don't recall that story, you can read it in Numbers chapter 22 through 24. But Balak wanted Balaam, the prophet, to curse Israel so that he could defeat them. And what did God do? He, you remember that story? He caused the cursings. He changed the cursings to blessings. And Balak couldn't defeat the Israelites. Or he says, remember, Shittim and Gilgal. Those two cities are near the Jordan River. And what God is doing is he's reminding them of his, their pilgrimage from Egypt into the Promised Land. And how did he allow them or help them get across the Jordan. The Jordan's at flood stage. Is Israel's last encampment east of the Jordan River was there at Shittim. And then chapter 4, the first stop west of the Jordan as they move east to west is Gilgal. But they walked across the river on dry ground. The Lord is not only faithful to bring them up out of Egypt, but also to bring them into the promised land. And what's his purposes in all of this? Verse 5, so they would know the righteous acts of the Lord. God, their king, has been completely faithful. In response to God's goodness, the people of Judah should have been willing to obey. God's goodness should have been their motivation. Think about our own lives, just kind of by way of application here. Has God done anything for us that we should remember? Has God been good to you? In what way has God been good to you? I think it's good as a family, if you have children at home or if you're even you and your spouse, if you could, maybe not on a daily basis, but regularly share what you're thankful for. I know it's really good for kids doing just a family devotional. It's really easy to say, what are we thankful for today? How has God been good to you today? And let's share that and let's thank the Lord. Have you forgotten God's goodness? Should His goodness not be motivation for our obedience? If we think about Romans chapter 2, verse 4, it tells us that God's kindness has led us to repentance. God's goodness should be motivation for our obedience. But it seems that the people of Judah has forgotten all that God has done for them. What about you and me? Have we forgotten what God has done for us? Verse 6 through 8, God desires His people to obey more than offering sacrifices. Look at verse 6 and 7. So the guilty party, what do they say? Well, we, we just need to, we can fix this thing. We can offer more sacrifices. How about we give better sacrifice? How about a year-old calf? That's the perfect age. That's the perfect sacrifice. That calf is in its prime. Let's do that. Let's offer more and better sacrifices. But I don't think sacrifices are the issue. If you remember, God has delivered the 
people of God from Egypt, and they're traveling through the wilderness, and they're on the way to the promised land, and they stopped at Mount Sinai. Do you remember? And Moses goes up on the mountain, and God gives them the law, and in that, the Ten Commandments, but also many other laws. And he tells them how they are to make sacrifices. And God knew that his people were rebellious people, that they would sin, they would rebel. God is a just God. He must punish sinners. And so what did God in his mercy do? He allowed these Israelites to take these innocent animals and offer them as sacrifices in their stead, in their place. And what they would do, oftentimes they would take these, these lambs or these calves, these goats, and they would lay their hand on the top of the head of that goat, that innocent goat, and they would take a knife and they would cut the throat of that goat, and that goat would drown in its own blood and would take the blood and the priest would sprinkle that on the altar. And what you do, what you're signifying by placing your hand on the head of that animals you're saying instead of me it's going to be this animal that's going to die and it was a very real vivid teaching moment that the wages of sin is death this should be me but instead God in his mercies allow me to offer up my sacrifice my lamb or my calf or my goat hold your spot right there in Mike and go left Go left to the book of Isaiah. Now remember, Isaiah and Micah, they're contemporaries. They're ministering. They're prophesying to the southern kingdom during the same time period. So they're working during the same time, Isaiah chapter 1. And God has set up this sacrificial system. And it's, it's, a, it's an act of mercy, isn't it? God allowing them to offer sacrifices, teaching them about sin but also allow them to have fellowship with him. But look in chapter 1 of Isaiah. If it's a black pew Bible, it's 672. Chapter 1, look at verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now, stop just a second. He's not writing to the pagan peoples of Sodom and Gomorrah. He's writing this to his own people. It's a bad sign when you're called Sodom and Gomorrah, right? It's like being called Cain or Judas. Look at verse 11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. These are all the rituals and sacrifices. The things he's commanded them to do, right? They're doing these things, but what's the problem? They're just going through the motions, right? When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil from your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Verse 17. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Now what's the Lord doing here? He's rebuking them because of they bringing all these sacrifices and these offerings and they're keeping the feast, but they're doing it out of ritual. It has no meaning. Turn back to Micah chapter 6. The guilty party, I'll, what I'll do, I'll bring more sacrifice. I'll bring better sacrifices. Maybe even my own son I will offer because of my sin. Look at verse 8 of Micah chapter 6. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Very similar to Isaiah chapter 1 verse 17. But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. This is the most familiar passage in Micah behind the prophecy of, of Micah chapter 5, verse 2, the promise of the Messiah King who will be born in Bethlehem, right? This is probably the second most well-known verse out of Micah. 
So what is God saying through the prophet? What does God desire? He doesn't want ritual going through the motions. What does he want? He wants obedience. He wants obedience. Some says this sums up the law, love God and love your neighbor. It's real similar to Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12 and 13. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today, for your good. Do justice. Act justly. Yeah, treat people like you want to be treated. Love, love kindness. Show mercy. And this, this kindness, it's a difficult word in the Hebrew language to translate into English. One commentator translated, loyal love that contains mercy. But just think about the Father in His mercy, allowing them to offer sacrifices, and then, of course, providing His own Son as a sacrifice. How merciful that is. That's how we're to be. To walk humbly with your God. That, that word humbly could also be translated walk carefully. Be careful how you live Live the way God wants you to. Jesus probably had this verse in mind in Matthew 23, 23. He's rebuking the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe, mint, and deal, and cumin, and you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. There's a commentator, his name's Kenneth Barker. He says that this is not an imitation in the place of the gospel to save oneself by being just. It's not saying a works-based thing. Nor is it an attack on the sacrificial system required by the law. Instead, it is a call for the natural consequence of a truly forgiven person to demonstrate the reality of their faith by living it out in everyday life. Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 15 and 16. God, he says this to King Josiah's son. He says, do you think you are a king because you compete in cedar? Do not your father, did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? That is what, that, then it was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and needy. Then it was well. Is not this to know me, declares the Lord. Think about that for a second. Is not this to know me? What is the Lord saying? God desires his people to obey. It's more than offering sacrifices. Obedience flows out of a love relationship with the covenant God. It's like the father. His father was somewhat strict. He had uh, several children, and he expected them before they left the house, they in the morning to go to school, they had to have their room tidied up. And when they came home, they had chores they had to do. And it was a yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am type of household. And their oldest child was a bit strong-willed. And one day, as he was correcting this child for their haughty tone, the child yelled back at the father, What do you want from me? And the father says, I want you to live like you love me. That's what I want from you. God wants his children. He wanted those from the southern kingdom to live like they loved him. Going through ritual and offering sacrifices and having the feast and just going through the motions. That's not what he wants. I don't want more of that. I want you to love me, live a life that pleases me because you want to please me. Think about our own lives. We live under the new covenant as believers. Are we, someday, sometimes maybe we focus on the outward things, right? We go to church, read our Bibles, we give to the church, we give to Lottie Moon, we give to confidential care, checking the boxes all.
But we need to be careful we're not doing those things in a, in a way we're checking the boxes off. But it's not a, we're not living our, our lives in a way that the overflow of our relationship with God results in obedience and pleasure and joy and God-glorifying demeanor from his children. That's what we should desire to do. Are we checking off the boxes, feeling good about ourselves? Are we walking with God? Do we live lives that look like we love the Lord? He desires obedience more than sacrifice. Thirdly, verse 9 through 16, we see that judgment is again pronounced on the guilty. He pronounces judgment on them in verse 9. The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. That's interesting. We think about the rod. The rod's a picture of corrective discipline, right, of God. But here it's personified as the voice of God himself. One pastor said we can rest contentedly in our sins and our stupidities and anyone who has watched gluttons shoveling down the most exquisite foods as if they do not know what they were eating will admit that we can ignore even pleasure. But pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. God speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It is the megaphone to rouse a deaf world. That's what God desires to do here. He wants to get their attention. We see in verse 11 and 12 more wickedness, more sinful behavior, unjust scales, deceit, violence, lies. And in verse 13 through 16, the judgment is described even more. God's going to make them desolate because of their sin. He's going to bring them to ruin. He's going to allow the enemy to destroy their land and their cities and carry away the people as captives. And everything they're going to try to do is going to come to nothing. You're going to eat and not be satisfied. There'll be hunger within you. You shall put away but not preserve, and what you preserve I will give to the sword. In other words, there's going to be someone else that's going to come, and all that you grow, all the crops you grow, all the things you produce is going to be taken by someone else. You'll sow but not reap. You shall tread olives but not anoint yourself with oil. You'll tread grapes but you'll not drink the wine. Why? Because the Babylonians are coming, and you're going to take it all away. Look at verse 16, another accusation as you've kept the statutes of Omri. Omri was Ahab's... You, you may not remember Omri, but Ahab, most of you will recall, he's a northern kingdom king, and his father, Omri, introduced him to Jezebel, Phoenician princess, who introduced them to Baal worship. You're idolaters. You're going the way of Baal. I will make you a desolation, verse 16, and your inhabitants a hissing, so you shall bear the scorn of my people. Chapter 7, verse 1 through 6, Micah describes their current condition, more degeneration taking place. He says, it's like going right after the summer harvest, and there's nothing, nothing good here. Verse 2, the godly has perished from the earth and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie and wait for blood and each hunts with the other with the net. Their hands are on what is evil. It's interesting. Um, he's saying the cupboard's bare. There's not even godly people here. They all are evil. Don't come looking for a, a righteous, God-fearing person because there are none left. And you think about culture, like our society, you know, no society or culture is ever entirely upright. There's always sinners in every culture, right? But in a, a, a well-functioning culture, the, the evil, the wicked are suppressed and those of good character are prominent and usually rule the land, right? So God institutes governments to keep those wicked people at bay. That's typically how it works. But in times of moral breakdown, 
that's inverted. And that's what's happened here. The leadership is wicked, and they've affected others who follow in their footsteps. And verse 3, their hands are on what is evil to do it well. Think about how many, how many are right-handed? Everybody right-handed? Any left-handed people in here? Southpaws? Yeah. yeah, just a couple, right? How many of you ambidextrous? Anybody can do it both hands? There's some people. Yeah, we got a couple people. Yeah, there's some people in here that they ride and throw with their right hand, but they do everything else with the left. We've got a few of those people here. Well, Micah's, yeah, they're the, all these folks here are ambidextrous. They do wicked things equally well with right hand or left hand, right? They're ambidextrous. Verse 4 through 6 of chapter 7, they have pillaged the upright to the point that their culture, their society is just completely broken down. It's inverted. And it's become impossible to trust anybody. Look here. No one trusts a neighbor. No one has confidence in a friend. Verse 6, the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And this is, it sounds familiar because Jesus uses it as an illustration when commissioning the 12. Yeah, that's what we're going to see happen. There's complete meltdown in your culture where it's godless. And Micah is living in a, a terrible time. A godless culture. And if you think, it'll be easy for him to give way to despair if he didn't know that God hears his pleas and will ultimately deliver those that trust in him. And I think about our own culture. It's not too much unlike Judah and Micah's day. We have a breakdown. We're having a breakdown in our society as well, aren't we? Our leaders are less and less trustworthy. We're having a breakdown in our culture where right is wrong and wrong is right in the world's eyes. To prove the point, the last couple of weeks the House has passed the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. You heard about that? It says that an infant born alive after an attempted abortion is a legal person for all purposes under the laws of the United States. So there's law put in effect. It says that doctors who are aborting babies and the baby survives, they will be required to care for those infants as a reasonably diligent and conscientious health care practitioner would render to any other child born alive. The bill passed 220 to 210 along party lines with two exceptions, but it's incredible. In our day and time, 210 of our congressmen think that babies who survive an abortion procedure should just lie on an operating table and receive no medical treatment. But that's what was happening in our country. Jenny was um, talking this week. We were talking, driving down the road, and she's, she's like, man, it's overwhelming, just all the sin and suffering we see. We've had some friends of ours um, just go through tragedy after tragedy and trying to carry that load for them and, and just all the work she does. She works for Confidential Care and she's talking to people every day that their lives are a, a train wreck and they're um, making these decisions and they're working with those ladies trying to help them. But she was just, she was just it was heavy on her, you know? Like, yeah, it's, it's heavy. But the great thing we're encouraged, hope we can be encouraged today as we look at Ma Micah chapter 7, Look at verse 7. This is our encouragement. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Amen. We don't have to despair. We look to the Lord. Who is like God? Fourth point, offering clemency to the guilty. Clemency is a, a disposition to show mercy, especially to those who are your enemy that come against you. Who is like God, offering clemency to the guilty? Yeah, our hope is in the Lord. And Micah sets himself apart, doesn't he? He had previously announced that, that God would not hear and respond to the prayers of 
the evil Israelites or to the Judeans because of their sin. And, but he says he'll surely hear and respond to those who keep his covenant in faith. And Micah here is talking about himself. He lives in a terrible time where there's a moral breakdown and things are topsy-turvy and they're not as they should be, but yet he says he'll hope in the Lord. And in verse 8, Micah's, it's almost like he's taking the place of the Israelites. He's acting as their representative. And look at, look at verse 8. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out of the light and I shall look upon his vindication. So Micah's throwing himself in with the rest of the Israelites and he says, we're guilty. We're guilty. We're not pretending we're not culpable. We're guilty. But he will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? You remember Assyria, Sennacherib, they came up to the walls of Jerusalem and they're threatening them, saying they need to just surrender because they're going to break down the walls and destroy the city. Remember Sennacherib's agent saying, who, who can defend themselves? against Sennacherib. Where is the Lord your God? That's what they were saying. It's interesting, the same God whose discipline Micah must bear is the same one who will plead his case and justify at his salvation. The Lord changes for being the prosecuting attorney to being a defense attorney. Isn't that great? God is not only just, but he's also the justifier. Isn't that amazing? Verses 10 through 13, one day the Lord will defeat all the enemies, and the, the end result is shame for the enemies of God. But for Micah, it's vindication. Think about when we're studying prophecy. This is one thing we're studying on, on Wednesday night. When you're studying prophecy, I know this has been a tough study. I know small group leaders are kind of like, this is kind of tough. It has been a difficult study in some ways. We look at prophecy and we always wonder, well, here's the promises of God. Judgment's coming. Okay, when did that occur? We know the Babylonians are going to exile the southern kingdom in 586. It's 100 years later. They're going to be judged. They're going to be in exile for 70 years and then they'll return and Jerusalem will be rebuilt. The temple will be rebuilt and the city walls. Nehemiah will build the city walls and it'll be rebuilt. And so there will be some glory returned, right? And sacrifices will begin again. But of course, as we read this, we know that that's not that rebuilding of Jerusalem. And we said last week, even as they built the temple, do you remember all the older people? They remembered the former temple in all its glory. What did they see when they built this other temple? They just boo-hooed and cried. It's so pitiful. This temple, it's nothing like the old one. So we know this isn't a fulfillment, but it's coming, right? Yeah, there's going to be a, a fulfillment because chapter 5, right, we saw the Messiah King promised to be born in Bethlehem and he'll begin the building up of the kingdom of God on earth and he's going to return one day, right? This Messiah who died on the cross for sinners and was buried and on the third day he rose and he, right, he appeared to disciples and many others for about 40 days and he ascended into heaven. But one day he's coming back and when he does, all of these promises here are going to be fulfilled. And all the, the foes, all those who've opposed him will be judged verse 15 as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt I will show them marvelous things the nation shall see and be ashamed of all their might 
They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. Licking the dust like a serpent. It's a Hebrew idiom of a military defeat. They've been conquered. A, a defeated foe would kiss the victor's feet. We see that in Psalm 72, 9, Isaiah 49, 23. But we see this in Philippians chapter 2. When is this fulfilled? Well, we get a glimpse of this. When it talks about Christ who comes in humility, he came humble, taking on flesh, living among sinners. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 through 11. Because he was humble, what did God do? God gave him the place above every name, right? Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's there. He's in that place, right? But one day when he returns, everyone's going to bow the knee. And we see the fulfillment of this prophecy in Micah where all the nations, all those who oppose the Lord, they shall lick the dust like a serpent. Look at verse 18 through 20. This is wrapping up this prophetic book. Remember, you remember what Micah's name meant? You need to remember this. Who is like God? We saw it at the beginning of the book, and we see it at the end. It's the book ends, right? And he says in verse 18, Who is a God like you? And notice what he says. He, he lists seven gracious characteristics of God towards sinners. Let's look at them, verse 18. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity. Passing over transgression. Not retaining his anger. Delighting in steadfast love. Look at verse 19. He'll have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will Notice he doesn't tread on us and put us underfoot, right? We see that about Christ, don't we? He'll put his enemies under his feet. But no, he says our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depth of the sea. That's just like saying, what, you... That ring a bell as far as the east is from the west, right? Yeah. Psalm 103, verse 10 through 12. Yeah, there's a, he does not deal with us according to our sins or pay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressors from the Yeah, he's saying the same thing. Yeah, he's cast into the depths of the sea. Yeah, the, our sins can never be brought up against us. Hey, are you worried about facing your sins at judgment? If you're in Christ, that is totally unnecessary. That's totally unnecessary if you're in Christ. At least that should be a, not even be a thought in your mind because of what Christ has done for us. Christ has paid our sin debt if you're in Him. Now, if you're Thinking about that, and that kind of got you a little nervous, maybe maybe there's reason. Maybe because you haven't had your sin debt paid for. Maybe you, you don't you're not hadn't been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Someone said, talking about this casting your sins into the depths of the sea, someone said, God cast your sins in the sea and he placed a no fishing sign on the shoreline, right? But then someone else said, no, he does better than that. He casts them into the sea and then destroys the sea, which he casts them. Maybe that's better. Verse 20, you will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Here, this promise to Abraham. What was the promise? He's going to become a great nation. That happened, right? He's been given land, the promised land. That was given to him. Those that curse them, they'll be cursed. Those that bless them, they'll be blessed. Right? And though the people rebelled and the northern kingdom and southern kingdom were exiled, God was still faithful to his covenant because through Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed. We Gentiles, we, we've been blessed by this nation. This nation produced a Savior through whom we can have forgiveness and mercy. Have you been forgiven? Have you received mercy from God because of what Christ has done for you?
If not, you need to repent today. Cry out to the Lord in repentance and faith, saying, God, I'm a sinner. I'm, I've rebelled against you, and I'm, I need to be forgiven. I know Christ died on the cross, and he died for me. And I need to be forgiven. I want to be forgiven. I want to live for you the rest of my days. Amen. I encourage you to do that by way of application. There's a soldier who was dying on the battlefield, and a chaplain came along and knelt down beside him, and the chaplain was real sweet and tender. And he asked him if there's anything he might do for the soldier as he was dying. And the soldier replied, Chaplain, I don't need anything done, but I need a lot of things undone. Yeah, we all need that, right? We need some of our sins forgiven. We need all of our sin forgiven. We need our transgressions atoned for. If you've yet to have your sins paid for by placing your faith and trust in the crucified, buried, and resurrected Savior, I want to encourage you to do that today. Micah, he knew God as a God of mercy. And that's why he was anxious to avoid sin I think it's good for us to be remembering what God has done for us that, that motivates us I think to obey him to be obedient God doesn't want us going through rituals checking off the boxes today coming here today you're checking off the box God doesn't want it he says I'm tired of that right he told the in Isaiah chapter 1 he told his, his people I don't want any of that I want you to live like you love me Church, let's live like we love Him. Let's live like we love Him. Are you in despair? Is the world and its sin? I used to tell my father-in-law, I love my father-in-law. He was a good man. He loved the Lord. He was real passionate about a lot of things. He watched a whole lot of Fox News. And that's why his blood pressure was so high. <laughs> but if you watch things about our, our world and you really keep up with what's going on in our world, you can do that several different ways. I look at the headlines every day. I don't always read the news. I just try to keep up with what's going on. Uh, Albert Moeller, Dr. Moeller at Southern Seminary, he does a briefing every day. He talks about things that are happening in today's culture and gives kind of a cultural commentary. I, I try to listen to that or at least peruse through it uh, most days. But it can be, it can weigh you down. Man, it can get, those of you that are teaching, you're with these children and you see and hear the things they, they're going through at home. They have wrecked lives. Some of you have coworkers and their marriages are falling apart and some of your children are wayward. And, you know, it can be a daunting task to carry these burdens, but we need to be hopeful it is difficult living in a sin-filled world, dealing with our own sin, dealing with the sin of our friends and family and, and just in the world in general. It's just things are just flipped, inverted. But we have, we have hope because of Christ. We should be salt and light. We should live lives that please the Lord because of what he's done for us. But, we have to remember one day all things will be made right. Our sin, isn't that great? Our sin, we're not having to deal with our sin anymore, our pride and our sin and our selfishness and all the conflicts we have to deal with day in and day out. All the sin of the world is going to be judged. That'll be made right. And we'll be in glory with the Lord forever and ever and ever and ever. And every time you say forever, that just gets sweeter and sweeter. Being glory, giving him glory for all eternity. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that you are good. And we, we want to be hopeful. We need to be hopeful, Father. We need to be, we need to have our minds and, and thoughts set on you. And we need to think rightly about this world. And we are burdened because so many things are wrong in this world. And it seems like the enemy is winning and getting the upper hand. And We are thankful that all the promises that we're given in Scripture are yes in Christ. And there's no sin that will go unpunished. And 
There's no injustice that won't be made right. And we're thankful for that. We're thankful for the promises that one day we'll be with you. And we'll be in the new Jerusalem. And we'll be with you where there's no need for light because the light of your glory shines brightly and we'll be able to give you glory. Not in a pitiful state, distracted state like we are now, like we do now, even on Sunday mornings. We get so distracted, but we long for the day and we look forward to the day. We'll be with you in glory and we'll be able to give you praise and honor in a way that is right and pleasing to you and there'll be no sin, no selfishness, no conflicts, We long for that. We look forward to it. We thankful, we're thankful for the hope that we have. And Father, for those that are here, that maybe they're children, students, maybe adults, and they are carrying a heavy burden, the weight of their sin and guilt of their sin and shame is upon them. Father, if there's any here that are suffering from that I pray that you would open their eyes and ears they would see their sin like you see it and they would see you rightly as you are and they would desire to turn from their sinful ways and trust Christ and the work he did on the cross for them Father save sinners today Father empower your church to go out and be salt and light and to live lives that please you. Live like we love you. We want to do that, but we need your grace to do it. We ask you to give it to us in abundance. And Father, for those who are sick, we ask for grace for them. For Miss Mary, we just ask that you would give her a lot of grace today, that you increase her faith, that she would trust you. Thankful for her testimony, thankful for her love for you. I ask you to be gracious to her. Be gracious to Mr. Clyde as he's recovering. Those that are waiting results of biopsies, we pray for help for them, that they would trust you. For those having procedures this week, we ask for grace and mercy, that things would go well. Give us opportunities, Father, to share the good news, the gospel this week with those who need to hear it. Go with us. Bless us in Jesus' name. Amen.